Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Hello, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am Shannon Vasconcelos, and this is my first day hosting this podcast. I don't want anyone to panic. Uh, Sally, Ian, and Beth will still be uh, rotating in on hosting duty, but they're adding me to the mix, at least for today. We'll see how today goes. Maybe my first and last occasions of hosting duty, but I hope not. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I am one of the college finance experts here at Bright Horizons College Coach. Uh, I'm also a former financial aid officer at Boston University and Tufts University. So uh, I've been on the show actually a lot to chime in with the finance perspective with our uh, wonderful admissions hosts and guests. Uh, but today I'm taking over and we'll see how this goes. Um, we, You might know me the most from our listener question segments, which are my favorite segments. I didn't wanna give those up. So we are actually tackling listener questions later on in the show. Um, But for now, for our first segment, we're going to be discussing letters of recommendation that you may need to get as part of the college admissions process. And joining me to share her expertise is the wonderful Lisa Albro. She is a longtime colleague of mine, also former college counselor at a couple of high schools, I believe, former uh, admissions officer at Goucher College. So tons of great experience Uh, to bring to this subject. So welcome, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here on your inaugural, I'm sure the first of many hosting. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for the vote of confidence. That's what I need today. So I guess to start with the the very basics, I believe there are two different types of recommendations that may come into play in the college admissions office. Letters of recommendation from a counselor, And from a teacher or more than one teacher, Mm -hmm. does everybody need to do both? Will every college require both types of recommendations? Not necessarily. In fact, there are some colleges that require none, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So you, you may have to provide zero recommendations to some schools, just a counselor recommendation to some schools, a counselor and a teacher to other schools, and maybe a counselor and teachers to some other schools, I know. So as with almost anything in college admissions, and I'm sure in many cases, college finance, Mm -hmm. you can't just make one statement and have it stick for all schools because there will always be anomalies. There will always be some schools that do things their own way or with their own systems that are a little bit different. So, you know, in saying that, I just want everybody to know that it's their job, all students and, and parents guiding their students, their job to know for sure for each of the schools you're planning to apply to, how many letters of recommendation do they need and who do they need them from? Got it. And how would a student know that information? Is that on mm-hmm. the admissions website? Yeah. The admissions websites of pretty much every school, some are a little bit more user-friendly than others. Usually if you look up application requirements, they'll spell out all the different things that you need. And one of those things or two of those things might be letters of recommendation. Got it. And so what is it that letters of recommendation I find are kind of an interesting part of this process Mm -hmm. because it's 
you know, most of your application, you as a student control, you know, it's you're, you're filling out the comab, you're writing the essay, you've taken the exams, you're deciding if you're submitting test scores or not. The letter of recommendation is sort of one aspect that you don't totally control as a student. Somebody else is doing it. You don't get to control what they put in that letter. But what exactly, what is the purpose that these recommendations are? Why is it that the colleges who ask for them, why do they ask for them? Sure. Well, they want to get perspective of professionals who have been teaching and guiding students. You know, they want to understand who are these people in, in your perspective? What are some of their strengths? What, what makes them good potential for college success? You know, what are some of the ways you've seen them stand out or distinguish themselves? And, and I can split it in two. And I think this might be a question. I might be jumping ahead on one of your questions. But, <laughs> uh, so the counselor perspective is meant to help understand or help, help the reader understand who that student is in the context of his class mm-hmm. or school and or yeah. school. And the teacher's perspective is to help the reader understand who that student is in the context of that particular classroom. Right. Or, and it. subject maybe even, but, but in, you know, so it's a, it's a narrower perspective in a way, but at the same right. time, it's a much more focused, it's more specific to that student's strengths in that in that teacher's purview, right? The, the teacher's job is not to talk about all the other things the student does. It's to say, this is what I'm observing as I've been teaching with the student for the past year or maybe the past several years, who knows how long. And this is where this person has has stood out for me or this is something this student did really, really well. Or, this is something they did that really impressed me or this was an insight they shared. Let me give an anecdote. Usually teacher recommendations can provide some anecdotal information that's Sometimes counselor recommendations can't. Got it. And so for thinking of which teachers you should ask, Mm -hmm. is there any method to the madness there? Is it the nicest teacher? Should you always (laughs) ask them? Is it teachers of certain subjects or certain years of school? Are there any guidelines that students should be thinking about in terms of who to ask? Definitely guidelines. Um, it doesn't have to be the nicest. And I think that's something that a lot of students gravitate to. Uh, when I was sitting in the counseling chair, I, I would have, there were some usual suspect teachers, right? All, <laughs> all students would say, oh, I'm asking from Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so. Everybody wanted these certain teachers to write for them. And I would always say, well, why? Why them? Oh, they're really nice or they're really friendly. I'd say, yeah, but what, what do they know about you? Right. Because that's the important thing to think about. When you're the student, think about which teachers... I'll say teachers, plural, right? Who knows you best? Who would have the most to say and and could give the most depth to something important about you academically? And that can be something good about you academically Mm -hmm. or something about you that maybe is a work in progress. Like case in point, if I have a student who's maybe been struggling in a subject and maybe didn't do so well, but kind of muddled through it and sort of figured their way out but maybe they don't have the greatest grade as a result of having not done really well in the beginning. That could actually be a great teacher perspective because the teacher could talk about, well, you know, hey, 
they didn't start off on the best foot or this was really tough for them, but I was really impressed with how they stuck it out or how they, you know, right. always, you know, made sure to, to follow up with me and, and correct anything that was wrong. And, you know, it, it made me feel more confident in the student's abilities as the semester went on or as the year went on. So that could actually be a great perspective to show. So it doesn't always have to be the teacher who gave you, gave you in whose class you earned the <laughs> A, right? Right. I love that. That's a really interesting perspective because I feel like students would tend to be hesitant if they didn't get a particularly good grade in the class. They wouldn't want to highlight that, but I think that's such a good perspective that that class where you had to work really hard, that teacher might have the best things to say about you more so than the teacher of the class where things just came really easily to you. Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. I think there's also a myth or, or maybe a, a belief uh, on some students' parts that they need to ask for recommendations from teachers in subject areas that they might be considering studying in college. And it does not have to be unless the school stipulates. If a program you're applying to is stipulating that, oh, you have to have a letter from a math teacher or whatever. Um, but usually that doesn't happen, except in very rare cases. Military academies have some specific requirements of who their letters come from, but most other schools and most other programs don't. So it's okay if you're looking at more of a STEM related subject, but wow, hey, you did so well in French that, and your French teacher has taught you for three years or maybe four years and that person knows you really well and you're yeah. active in the French club or whatever it is. That would be a great recommendation for you to have if it's a person who can really share insight into who you are you know, your character, not just your abilities, but who, who you are as a student, as a person, because the letter of recommendation, letters of recommendation are meant to help make a student three-dimensional in the application. Right. You know, the, the numbers are the numbers, the, the GPA and the test scores, if you're submitting them, they are what they are. And, you know, the, they're forming a certain picture of you, the readers are, are getting a certain sense of you from those. But it, the letters help to drive things home, help to make you stand out beyond mm -hmm. the grades, beyond the numbers, and help readers right. better understand you. And is there any restriction in terms of the year or years the teacher taught you? Should you be asking someone who taught you in freshman year of high school? Not optimal. Uh, if, yeah. if the only time they ever taught you was in ninth grade, it's not a great idea because the perspective is of, think of that, who were you in ninth grade? You know, you mm. were new to high school, finding your way. Yeah. You've matured over the course of the last three years. My favorite group of teachers to go to for recommendations would be the junior year teachers because they will have just come off teaching you from either the last semester or year right before mm -hmm. you're applying and their perspective is pretty fresh uh, or somebody maybe who did teach you back as far as freshman or sophomore year, but who is teaching you again in senior year. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you have this teacher again as a 12th grader, that could be an interesting perspective because they can talk about the young version of you and the growth that they're seeing. Cause they, they I can virtually guarantee they're not going to write this letter before fall. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that from having <laughs> worked in a, in a school setting for 11 years and having had to uh, track down friends of mine on the faculty who I knew owed me letters of recommendation. And who, not, this is not to scare anybody, but it would be <laughs> October and I knew application deadlines were coming and I would be walking down the hall and I would see my friend, you know, oh, there's there's Joe. And uh oh, wait, there Joe went. He saw him. I know he saw me. But uh -oh. he, he knows 
<laughs> I know he owes me letters yes. of recommendation. <laughs> it happens, but um, so many of them won't write these letters until fall anyway. So they, if they're teaching you again in twelfth grade, they have the opportunity to see the modern day version, the the the, the, the contemporary version of right. maybe that ninth grader they once knew. Got it. And now that you mentioned, they will likely not be writing the recommendations till fall. Should you be waiting to ask them until fall? Or is that something that juniors should be thinking about now? Juniors should definitely be thinking about this now. And there are a couple of reasons. One, a lot of teachers don't have the capacity to write dozens and dozens or hundreds, let's say, of letters of recommendation. They might say, look, I have a family. Maybe they just had a child or they've got something going on at home or they work a second job or they coach a sport or, you know, they're busy and they can't always say yes to everyone. So they might say, all right, the max number of students I can write for this year is 20. And if you are the 21st person to ask me, you know, I, I, I'll see what I can do, but I don't know if I can do it. And then they're not doing that to be mean, but in all fairness, they want to be able to devote the time they need to this. Of right. Course, so, yeah. so spring is a good time to ask, get their buy-in. Like I said, they're not going to write it now. They're probably not going to write it in the summer, but at least get on their short list and follow up with them in the fall to say, just wanted to check in, you know, how was your summer? Let's chat. Is it still okay? Are you still able to write my letter of recommendation for college this year? That's great advice. And, and I love the point that teachers are people too, <laughs> who have their own lives and families outside of school. Yeah. So it's great for students to keep that in mind um, as they're asking teachers for, for recommendations that that you can't ask them one day and expect it to be done the next. Mm -hmm. Give a nice, uh, a bit of notice um, and and be nice and polite about it. I I think will serve you well in this process. Um, Now, how about the counselor recommendation? I know that school counselors have a lot on their plate and, um, yeah. The college process is just one part of that for many school counselors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the latest stats I read said that the, in the United States, the average student to counselor ratio is f- over 400 students per one counselor. It can and be. so if you're attending a school with that kind of ratio or worse, the school counselors aren't going to know every student. The school counselors try their best, but it's a very, very hard job with a lot on their plates. As a student, I think students get nervous about that. My school counselor doesn't even know me. What are they going to write? And is is that going to put me at a disadvantage in the admissions process? Absolutely not. First of all, colleges are aware of the fact that counseling caseloads are high. And one of the questions that a counselor has to respond to on a, a form called the secondary school report is how many students in this class Right. And ah. so or and, and it, there used to be questions on those forms that asked about, you know, how many counselees do you have? And so it, it's they know colleges yes. will know readers <laughs> will know. And so they're not expecting them to know you very, very well. But there are mechanisms in place. A lot of counselors will have students uh, fill out a, a sort of like an evaluation form on themselves. Some of them call it a brag sheet, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. uh, just questions about themselves that will help the counselor better craft that letter of recommendation. And yeah, some of them might have a boilerplate they use and they might cut and paste some same phrases. And again, that's not going to hurt students. Colleges will look to the teacher recommendations for the more, you know, original, in-depth perspective. And the counselor 
letter just to kind of say, okay, where does the student fall within the realm of, of their academic, their graduating class and, and their high school? And there might be some little pieces of information that the counselor can insert in there. Um, and I don't want to say it's not important. I wrote those letters for 11 years and I, I believed they were important, but, but I also had an advantage. I was only the college counselor. I was not the yes. school counselor, guidance counselor. I was, you know, just, that mm-hmm. was my one and only role in that school. And it was my job to write those letters and to be as particular as I could be. And I spent a lot of time crafting them, but not everybody can do that. And you're not at a disadvantage if your counselor can't do that. Perfect. And is there anything that students have to do? We talked about how to ask your teachers to write a recommendation. Do you have to ask your school counselor or is that automatic? You shouldn't have to. That's in that's in a counselor's job description. It's just sort of generally understood that counselors are writing letters of recommendation for each of their students. That's just what happens. Uh, it, counselors, though, may need students to let them know or should need students to let them know <laughs> when their deadlines are, what schools they're applying yeah. to. And a yes. lot of times that'll happen through a program like Naviance or SCORE if the school uses one of those or some internal tracking system. So my advice to students with regard to their counselors is just be aware of you know what the procedures are. Right. Look at the counseling webpage because there's probably information there and there might be something like an assembly at the beginning of school in 12th grade. Mm-hmm. I always did that with my 12th graders, just, you know, brought everybody in, parents and students and said, OK, here's how we're doing it. Process is starting here for applying to colleges. Follow these steps. These are your deadlines for me. And, and many counselors will have a deadline for notification from the student of where they're applying and, and what their deadlines are fairly well in advance of the actual deadline so that the counselors can get all the documentation together that they need yep. to get to send it, whether they're sending it electronically or by mail. Uh, they need a little bit of lead time. You can't tell them when my deadline is tomorrow and expect yes. them to get it out. <laughs> Got it. Mm-hmm. Now we talked about how some colleges don't require any recommendations. Some it's counselor and maybe a teacher or two. Mm-hmm. Can you, or should you <laughs> submit any more recommendations. If you have other people in your life that you think would recommend you to a college, is there a reason to, is it even possible to submit supplemental recommendations? It is possible. There are some schools that will allow it and some won't provide that. You'll see, for example, schools on the common application might allow you one additional letter of recommendation or two additional letters of recommendation. It's not an absolute necessity. And and to be honest, Every internal admissions program, you know, the director of admission will say to the staff at the beginning of application reading season, these are the things that you absolutely must read in every student's application. And here are the things that you can read if you have time. And usually the supplemental letters of recommendation are the read if you have time. And I'm not going to say that they never factor in because sometimes they might if, if a, mm-hmm. an applicant is on the fence, right? And their an admissions committee is trying to decide should we or shouldn't we admit that could be the, you know, oh, some other piece of information from this additional letter of recommendation helped us better understand them. But, you know, I, I tell students be, be smart about it. Don't have many additional letters of recommendation. If there's one extra person like a supervisor from a job or somebody who's overseen, you know, something that you've done in your extracurriculars in a really deep way, that might be a nice extra voice, but don't, don't think that it's necessary. Right. It it just might be a nice extra touch to include and, and they may or may not read that. So 
Ah, yes. You know, because admissions counselors are people too with lives and they can't read 20 letters of recommendation for each student. Yeah. Beyond the fact having a a lot of admissions people will tell you they don't have lives during reading season. All they do is read, but they, but they have a, a, some have a quota or, or they have to make Mm -hmm. it through a certain number of applications in a time frame because they have to start meeting in committees and deciding on those applications. So they don't have all the time in the world to read these things. Right. So only if it adds something, don't feel like it's necessary. Right. 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 And just to wrap up, because this is, it's now mid-April, seniors are making decisions. I'm going to throw you a softball question. I'm going to lead the jury. (laughs) Okay. Should seniors who are, are now making their college decisions is there anything they should say to their teachers and counselors who who wrote them recommendations at this point? Oh yes. Thank you. I would I would have had them thank the teachers before that. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not contingent upon getting into college, right? right? It's once the application process is is going through, you know, they've sent their applications, that's a nice time to thank their teachers for writing their letters. So so a teacher doesn't feel like, well, this is determined determinant on, you know, whether I, the student gets in or not. It's right. just the fact that I, I did this for them it. and they're thanking me. But now yeah. is a really nice time to, for seniors to thank their teachers and counselors again, uh, you know, because they do work hard and they do what they can to promote that each student and their interests and their desires and their goals. Absolutely. So I think that's a great message to to leave folks with. And I know we have lots of school counselors who also listen to this show. Mm-hmm. So Lisa and I will give an extra thank you to all the school counselors out yes. there who we know yes. are working school hard. School counselors, right now. I, I I know what you're going through, and it's I know it's not easy, but it's also rewarding on so many levels. So keep keep doing yeah. what you're doing. That's great, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us today and being my very first guest. And I learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Have a great day and great rest of your show. Thank you. And listeners, we're going to take a quick break, but come back and we're going to answer your listener questions. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. As humans, we suffer when we believe we are not good enough. We are taught we must be better, look better, try harder, and achieve more. We cope with the stress and disappointment of life in ways that make us feel worse and keep us stuck in a cycle of unworthiness. We don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. Kirsten and her guests will share how self-acceptance and unconditional self-love can help you break this cycle and find freedom. Listen to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone. And we are now getting to my favorite segment of our show, which is listener questions. We love when we get to answer actual questions that you've submitted to us. Uh, we love you know helping individual families, whether that's the families that we work with individually on a daily basis or all the individual families out there in radio land, podcast land, wherever y'all live right now. Uh, we love answering your questions. So do feel free to submit questions to us. We are always in the market for new questions. You can submit them to us through our website. There's a, we have a special form on our website to submit questions. If you go to info.getintocollege.com slash radio dash show. So it's a lot to remember. If you go, go to getintocollege.com, you can navigate there. You can also email us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Or what's probably the easiest way to submit questions is through our social media channels. We're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Just drop into our DM, send us a question, and we can answer it on an upcoming episode. Um, and so joining me today is one of my favorite colleagues here at Bright Horizons College Coach, Ms. Christine Kenyon. Welcome, Hello. Christine. Thank you so much, Shannon. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I am excited to have you here. And Christine and I were talking beforehand. We were both very excited about doing this segment together because while we work together, you know, every day and occasionally go out for ice cream when it's good weather here in the Boston area, the last time we were together in sort of a public forum was a few years ago when we did an hour long Facebook Live where we busted college admissions and finance myths. <laughs> and you can go to our Facebook page and it is still there. Search for fact or fiction. You will find Christina and my video where we greatly embarrass ourselves. <laughs> I embarrassed myself by making handwritten signs that read backwards once they were on video. And then Christine embarrassed herself with terrible dad jokes. They were great. They were great jokes, actually. <laughs> do you have any for us today, Christine? I do. What's the cow's favorite animal to hang out with? What? A moose. <laughs> My kindergartner told me that one. Terrible. And I can't believe you had that ready to go. I'm very impressed. You know I did. <laughs> <laughs> now let's answer some actual questions. Now that we've really annoyed all of our listeners, I can hear I can hear the fast forward button going on right now. Uh, and the first question I have for you, Christine, comes in from Natalie. Um, and this is actually a great follow-up to our previous segment where I talked to Lisa about letters of recommendation. So I think this is a great way to put Lisa's um guidance into, you know, a real world situation. So Natalie asks, my high school junior is taking honors anatomy with the lab and AP biology. He feels more comfortable asking his anatomy teacher for a letter of recommendation than the AP bio teacher. He's getting A's in both classes, but a higher A plus in anatomy. If he wants to apply to college as a STEM major, he's undecided, but perhaps environmental engineering, physics, biology, but not pre-med, uh, would a letter from the anatomy teacher be sufficient to satisfy the core subject class requirement for letters of recommendation? He is looking into applying to some, not all, selective schools in the 30 to 40% acceptance uh, rate range, but not 
like Ivy League colleges or the super highly selective schools. He has a 4.0 unweighted GPA and is taking all honors and AP classes. Good for him. Thank you for your input. So is that anatomy teacher recommendation, will that work? Absolutely, yes. So the thing that I loved most about letters of recommendation when I was reviewing applications was getting a snapshot into who the student is in the classroom. So how they like to learn, how they contributed to classroom discussions. It didn't matter. I wasn't looking for a specific thing like, oh, this is the student to raise their hand every class or, you know, but I was looking for nuggets like this student uh, really shines in uh, creative based work and group projects. So if the anatomy teacher has a better insight into your son, how he works, if they have a better connection. Um, absolutely. That's a great teacher to ask. And regardless of where that grade difference is, A versus A plus, it's more about the growth of the student over the academic year. So if that anatomy teacher can really capture some good growth that the student has had, by all means, go for it. Um, you just want a positive recommendation letter and um, to learn something about the student. So I say, thumbs up for the anatomy teacher. Awesome. And I love that your point that you were looking for little tidbits to get to know this student better. And I, I think that can be generalized that admissions counselors aren't looking for negative things generally, like they're looking for the positive, what's reasons to admit in general. And those little, they just want to get to know you better, pick out those those little tidbits that a teacher could share Mm -hmm. um, and don't overthink the recommendation a lot beyond that, I think is the messaging. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you have a question for me, Christine, and this is one is actually not about college admissions or finance, but more about the podcast. So you want to hit me with that? I do. All right. So this is from Namrata and they're asking, thanks for such a valuable podcast. I am a parent of a junior beginning to navigate college admissions. I have not been through the education process here in the United States. So just beginning to understand how to navigate this process. And I see you have over 400 plus episodes. Which episodes are a must for me to catch up? I think it will be useful for any parents who are new to the process to quickly get up to speed and use a wealth of resources and information you are providing on your episodes. Did you plant this question, Shannon? <laughs> I did not, but but I could have. <laughs> I swear I didn't. Uh, but thank you for the question, Namrata. Um, what I would say is we have a ton of fabulous episodes that we've recorded over the past eight years. Too many to name. I'll just, because it pops into my head, I will just drop it's at least one of my favorite episodes. It's the first that springs to mind that we recorded. It was October, 2021. And the segment was called why we hate the Costco essay. And it was a segment. I believe Ian was the host, our colleague, the other Christine, (laughs) Christine Sawicki was the guest. And they were talking about, you can Google it and find it. There's this famous student wrote an essay about her trip to Costco and it was sort of lauded online as this great essay. And then of course, every student wanted to write their college essays about going to various big box stores. And, and Christine and Ian talked about, you know, why you shouldn't try to um, recreate somebody else's essay, try and figure out what admissions officers want and deliver that, but how to bring yourself to the essay and what the real goal of a college essay is. So that's one that just immediately springs to mind is I really enjoyed that episode and found it 
very helpful. As a non-admissions expert, after listening to it, I immediately emailed Christine and Ian. It was like, I get it now. I get what you're supposed to do in a college essay. So I would recommend that particular segment. Um, But beyond that, I would say anyone just sort of joining us now, yes, we have an eight-year history, um, but we do intentionally um, cover, we know people are joining us all the time and there'll be new students writing essays this year. There'll be new students taking on college visits. There'll be new students applying for financial aid. So we intentionally will cover those topics over and over again, hopefully new angles, new guests talking about them. Um, But you don't have to dig back into the archives to get the information you need. Now you can start listening now and just listen forward. If you have time and want to dig back in the archives, go for it. You can search for any particular topics you might be interested in. If you want to know how to negotiate scholarships, you can search on our blog, I think is a great resource. Um, which is at blog.getintocollege.com. We um, write up summaries of all the different podcasts that we do. So if there's a certain topic you want to hear about on the podcast, search on our blog and it will show you the episode that that was from. So you can go and listen to it. You'll also find written blog posts on the topic that, that will be helpful as well. You can also search on the Voice America website, on Apple Podcasts. So if there are certain things that you want to learn about, you can search the archives. Otherwise, feel free to just start listening now and we'll we'll get you all the information that you need. Love it. Okay. Next question for you, Christine, is from Ilana. And she says, there is so much focus on activities and well-roundedness, but what about the child who gets very good grades, but high anxiety prevents them from doing any group activities outside of the house? will they still have semi-competitive college options? Absolutely. So I think the first thing to remember is that not all colleges review applications holistically. So there's the numeric review process, which is based on the academic data, transcript, and testing where applicable. Um, And that's sort of the base for the entire admission process. But beyond that, there are some schools that add the holistic factor, which is, okay, what about everything else? What makes you a compelling candidate? And so for a school like Cal Poly Pomona or any of the Cal states, um, they don't look at active. There is no space to indicate what activities you have been a part of on your application. And there are many, many schools that have a very numerically based application process where activities, they're not even a part of the process. So know that, number one. Uh, And number two, when it comes to how a student spends their time outside of the classroom, I think we've really seen a shift in this the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, being well-rounded really was the buzzword in admissions. And you would kind of hear that being said in admissions offices. I haven't really heard that when I've been visiting schools more recently. And instead, it almost feels as if the pendulum has swung the other way. And colleges are talking more about students who are well lopsided in the sense that Mm. instead of having students kind of spread themselves out and do a bunch of different clubs and activities, whether or not they really like all of them just to have something to fill on their application, what colleges seem to prefer now is just sort of understanding, all right, what's a handful of ways in which you've spent your time outside of the classroom and why? Why did you choose to spend your precious free time in this way with this community of people? 
And there's no hierarchy. There's no preference colleges have for students who do one activity versus the other, theater versus football, football versus working at McDonald's. So I think that um, when it comes to activities and extracurriculars for student for colleges that do review applications holistically, they ask for that information because they want to see that the student is able to establish community um, outside of the classroom because college is a living and a learning experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to envision how the student might engage with the college or university once they get to campus because colleges don't want to admit all the same type of student. They want to make sure they have kids who are going to cheer on the basketball team and also students who are Mm going to go to open mic night um, and perform. Mm -hmm. So uh, colleges just kind of want to understand how a student might get involved outside of the classroom on their campus. Um, and generally, I just think activities, they teach you these soft skills that you can't really learn as easily in school. So time management skills, conflict resolution. Yes. Um, that's what why colleges that review applications holistically might have a bit more focus on these activities is because they just want to understand, you know, how a student has built some of these um, soft skills or grown within them. So yes, uh, there are highly competitive colleges, semi-competitive colleges that <laughs> review numerically and will not even allow students to input information about activities. And there are an entire range of universities that are holistic in nature um, that will allow students to reflect on their activities, but also welcome students with a variety of different ways in which they spend their time, whether it's a summer experience a student has, or family responsibilities. There's always something that a student thinks doesn't count or can't be kind of listed on their application um, that can be focused on in that sort of extracurricular section, essay section, et cetera. Perfect. And I think that is a great stopping point for now. We're just going to take a quick break and we will be back with more of your questions. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. We are here talking to my colleague, Christine Kenyon, former Babson admissions officer. I think I forgot to say that at the at the beginning of the last segment, but she worked at Bebson in Boston College and 
Duke, UNC, a lot of places. Christine's got got the goods to tell you. She's got the experience and the expertise. But I think to start, I think, Christine, you have a question for me. I do. Yes. So a listener named Rob from Texas wrote in to ask, the FAFSA Simplification Act expands the cost of attendance, indirect expenses to include fees for obtaining professional licensure, certification, or credentials. Does that mean using college funds, for example, a separate online course or a course for an IT certificate, or if an accounting student, perhaps an SQL slash Excel course uh, that covers knowledge or experience that's required for employment? So I think not quite, Rob. And first of all, I am super impressed that you have dug this deeply into the details of the FAFSA Simplification Act to um, pull out this this provision that I think most people has not gotten a lot of press. I think most people don't know about this. Um, To to take a step back, FAFSA Simplification Act um, came out as part of one of the COVID relief bills actually at the end of 2020. And it was a a really a total revamping of the FAFSA um, simplification because they are reducing the number of questions that are going to be asked, which is fantastic. Um, it's actually being implemented for the 24-25 school year, which is actually the FAFSA that um, rising seniors in high school this upcoming fall will be filling out the uh, 24-25 FAFSA then. Uh, so this it is to come very shortly. It hasn't been implemented quite yet. Uh, and it makes lots of changes to the FAFSA. Um, but it also includes a few changes to cost of attendance regulations. The cost of attendance is a budget that financial aid offices are required to set to put a limit on how much financial aid students can receive, how much they can borrow in student loan, and is meant to represent um, the amount of money it would cost a typical student to live and attend this university for a year. Um, so it includes things like tuition and fees and Roman board and books and supplies, uh, and also has the ability to include the costs of this uh, um, professional licensure uh, or certification. Um, now, this actually already, this is not new with FAFSA simplification. The regulations already allow for a one-time allowance uh, for the costs of ad- obtaining a professional licensure or, or certificate. Um, what the FAFSA Simplification Act changed is that it's no longer restricted to a one-time allowance. You could actually... Uh, you could receive financial aid or borrow student loans to cover multiple, um, the getting of multiple um, professional credentials. Um, But why I think the answer to Rob's question is no, you know, can you take an Excel course and, and get that included and get financial aid to cover that if you're going to be an accountant is the way it's actually written is that You can include the cost of obtaining a first professional license or a certificate for students who are enrolled in a program that requires such professional licensure or certification. So while 
I, it'd be great for your accountant to know how to use Excel, and that was, certainly would be helpful. It is not a getting a certificate in Excel is not a requirement for being an accountant. Um, so where this really comes into play, it came into play for me when I was working with dental students at Tufts University. To be a practicing dentist, <laughs> you need to um, be certified. You need to get a license to practice dentistry. And so we could include in our cost of attendance budget for our dental students, the costs of taking the licensing exam, which is quite expensive, you know, at least a few hundred dollars. Um, and it would also come into play, I'm, I'm thinking like a community college who offers a program in cosmetology in many states. You have to have a license to practice cosmetology. So those are the types of programs and certifications that would meet these requirements. It has to be required um, in order to practice this career that this program prepares you for. So it's not just any kind of certificate that you think might be helpful. Um, it really does have to be a requirement um, for that type of job. And again, the difference is now a one-time allowance is allowed uh, and moving forward, you it can be multiple allowances. So I think that's helpful um, if... I can think of two instances why that would be necessary. One, the student fails the exam the first time and has to retake it and repay for it. So again, you could, would be included in the uh, cost of attendance, could borrow some student loans to cover that if needed. And also maybe if you need to be licensed in multiple states, you could, you might have to take multiple exams, have multiple costs. So that's the benefit of what's new in the FAFSA Simplification Act. Uh, but unfortunately, Rob, I think that it doesn't apply to exactly what you were asking. We, and we dug deep into the weeds there. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Those examples were excellent. <laughs> uh, and the next question for you, Christine, comes in from Emma through our Instagram page. Um, she says, I find your content very helpful. And I just have a quick question that I want your opinion on. I'm retaking my SAT, but as of right now, I have a 1390. I go to a public school that isn't competitive and has an average uh, 1,000 to 1,100 SAT in the school profile. If I'm applying to a school with a 50th percentile SAT of, say, a 1,500, would be a very competitive school, do you think I should submit? It's significantly less than the 50th percentile, but it's significantly more than my school average. So I'm torn. So Christine, what matters there? How she compares to the students in her high school or how she compares to the applicants at this college? It's such a good question. And first of all, Emma, I hope that your tests went well. And I love that this is from a student. Students yes. are listening. That's great. Um, great question. So I think it depends on where you're applying to college. And even more than that, because you're saying, okay, we're applying to schools that have a 1500 as an average, right? But what major or division you're applying to and what the breakdown of your SAT mm -hmm. score is. So of that 1390, um, if you're applying as an English major and your English score is a 500 or 600 mm -hmm. and your math score is whatever the equivalent is, I'm 
an admission educator, so I don't do math live on <laughs> podcasts and recordings. So Shannon, you can do that one. But if your if your evidence based reading and writing score was significantly lower than your math score, it might make it hard for the admission counselor to advocate for you in committee for the journalism major or the English major because your standardized testing might be that that individual subscore might be lower. Now, let's say it was reversed. Then that 1390 total with like, let's say you have an 800, uh, you know, evidence-based reading and writing score, that could be a great thing to showcase um, mm-hmm. if, it, if it is something that um, kind of highlights your abilities. What is tricky is that when you have the 50th percentile, so you just have this one average score, right? What's more helpful is understanding, okay, but what's the bottom 25% and the top 25%, like what's the mm-hmm. range here? So maybe their middle 50% of admitted students score between a 1400 and up to whatever. So in that case, if the bottom end it is a 1400, that 1390 is really, really close. And the fact that your score is so much higher than the average at your high school could be a really good way for the admissions officer to have just an additional piece of academic data to advocate for you in committee. Um, but there are other students or other, there are other people who feel as though, well, that score alone isn't enough information. Maybe um, that score is going to be hurtful because actually you've taken every advanced course and gotten all A's and the reality is you're going to be competing with other applicants who have taken every advanced course at their high school and also gotten yes. all A's. So in that case, that 1390, that data point might not be necessary. It might not be helpful because mm-hmm. your transcript is so strong. It can stand on its own perfectly fine without your scores. So this is a long-winded way of saying that when you have the option to send testing or not, because not all schools are testing optional, many, many are, um, you want to kind of think through what major division am I applying to? What are the top and low ends of the averages? What's the breakdown of the individual scores with relation to what you're applying to? And does that score add value or detract from the transcript? Because the transcript is always going to be what's kind of looked at most closely in the application process. I love it. And I think we are living in wonderful times now where at most schools, you made the point, not all, I'll give a shout out to those Florida state universities because I know you're a Florida native, Christine, who are still requiring those test scores. (laughs) But it's such a great thing for students to to have the option now where you can submit the test scores if they're going to help you and you have the option to not submit them if they don't add to your application. So, and by the way, Emma, a 1390 is a great score. So it's score. I don't want you stressing out about that school where the average is 1500. That is like a few schools in the midst of the, you know, 4,000 colleges in the United States. Uh, You know, 99% of them, that 1390 is like, whoa, Emma is awesome. How do we get here? here? (laughs) Uh, Okay. I think you have a question for me, Kristen. I do. So this comes from Pedro, whose son is in 11th grade, uh, and he wants to know, when do we fill out the FAFSA for my student? Yes, excellent question, Pedro. And there was a standard answer that I have repeated thousands (laughs) of times over the last number of years that is no longer correct. The 
historically, the FAFSA has been available every October 1st. So October 1st of senior year was the earliest you could submit the FAFSA. And then uh, every college sets their own deadlines, but they could be anywhere from November to March, really. So anytime after October 1st of senior year. That FAFSA Simplification Act that I mentioned a while ago um, that has changed a whole lot of things on the FAFSA within the financial aid formula. The Department of Education is in the process of implementing all of those changes now, making all those changes to the FAFSA. Uh, It is a tremendous amount of work in the Department of Education systems, the whole technology behind it. And once all those technology shifts are made, colleges then have to integrate all those changes into their system. And essentially, we just received word in the past couple of weeks, the Department of Education has come out and said, the FAFSA will not be available by October 1st this year. It is going to be delayed until December. So as of right now, what we know, sometime in December, they have not given a specific date, is when the FAFSA will be available. So um, that's when seniors can plan on completing the FAFSA. This year, sometime after December, schools will presumably shift their Uh, financial aid application deadlines back. If you're applying to a college that requires the CSS profile, um, which a number of private schools do, we are still anticipating that to be available December 1st. I'm sorry, October 1st. So if you're applying early decision anywhere, they may ask you to complete the profile and do an estimate based on that. Whoa. This is a big change. Big change is this year. So if you apply early decision or early action, there is a world in which you don't get financial aid information at the same right time away. as your acceptance yes. because yes. if the school doesn't require the profile, there's no they, data. They won't to create know, a yes. from, right? So, so you may have to wait for mm. a financial aid award. Yes. Yeah, big changes. You're going to have such an exciting fall, Shannon. I am. <laughs> and with that, that is all the time that we have for today. So thank you so much for joining me today, Christine. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. If you get a chance, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please don't say we hate that new host. Uh, Anything else I will take. And please join us next week. We're having a guest from the International Baccalaureate Program. We're going to talk about now that you know where you're going to college, how to pay that bill. So tune in next week and every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.